Well, the plan for this morning is to finish Leviticus. And if we don't, then I also have next week to finish it. We are, we are officially off schedule, but going to be back on schedule. As you all know, with Jim Esway and his sister passing, that ended up changing some things, and in, including the schedule of the class, which gives us more time here. And so this is the new, new plan as of now. We're still here. We're not in the other room right now because the parenting class is still going on. And we're just going to stay here and go from Leviticus to Numbers. If we don't finish this today, then next week we'll uh, wrap it up. Otherwise, we'll have uh, a lesson of my choice in between the two. And then we're going to be in Numbers for eight weeks is what we're going to do after that. Because I couldn't divide it into seven or nine. We got to do it in eight. But we're just going to be here. I'm just going to plan to just keep showing back up here and teaching the Bible. That's the plan. So Leviticus 26 to 27, last two chapters in the book is what we're going to be looking through. And this is a section where the blessings and curses are first introduced and the Mosaic Covenant, but there's not just blessing and cursing here. There's almost there's all also a promise of restoration, and this section in Scripture guides how you read the rest of Scripture because you're going to see these blessings happen. You're going to see these curses happen. You're going to need to be reminded of God's promise of restoration of people in the land, and there's prophecy of the exile in here, and what's happening at this moment in history is the, the Israelites are getting all of the content of the covenant that was made at Sinai. So in a sense, this is like them getting Genesis to Revelation. You know, this is the big conclusive thing in a way. And Leviticus 26 especially ends up functioning somewhat as a spiritual barometer for Israel as you keep reading the scripture. When you see the blessings happening, it's because they're doing well and they're obeying. When you see the curses happening, it's because they're doing poorly, which is all pointing out their need to be restored to God ultimately. And within the context of the whole book of Leviticus, which is about holiness, it's the way of holiness and the walk of holiness, the, the blessings, curses, and restoration are all teaching a theology of holiness. Holiness is tied to blessings, it's tied to cursing or discipline as I've titled it here, and restoration, because holy obedience results in blessing, unholy disobedience results in being disciplined or punished by the Lord. And for one to truly be made holy, one has to be restored to God through repentance, which is the purpose of the discipline that he brings, is to bring a people to repentance. So we're going to start off by looking at this first section on blessing 
in chapter 26, verses 1 through 13 together, if you want to join me in your copy of God's Word. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves a graven image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a carved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am Yahweh your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to do them, then I will give you rains in their season so that the land will give forth its produce and the trees of the field will give forth their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also give you peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate wild beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. But you will pursue your enemies and they will fall before you by the sword. And five of you will pursue 100 and 100 of you will pursue 10,000. And your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply. And I will confirm my covenant with you. And you will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not loathe you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this great text, that we would better understand you and your character and your plan throughout creation and its relationship to the Israel, to Israel and to your church as well. We pray that you would help us to understand your word, to rightly divide it, and that this lesson would be used to shape us to greater holiness to you so that we would be found faithful as your witnesses. Amen. When it comes to this section for blessings on obedience, it starts with telling them that they're, they're not to make for themselves any idols or a graven image or some sort of pillar or some other place of worship. Well, why, why were they not to do that? Yeah, he said, for, so this is the reason, for I am Yahweh your God. That's why you're not making other gods or other things to worship. Commentator Alan Ross says on this, the, the making of images and idols was not only a violation of that allegiance, but also a reversal of creation with people forming gods in their own image in order to manipulate and control their own destiny. I thought that was helpful in thinking about idolatry. It's a reversal of creation where we're making gods in our own image. And there's an element in which when we look back at this ancient Israel and they would actually make physical gods, that you see what the same concept at the heart of making the idol was to be able to manipulate and control things in the world 
which is probably more so where we see our idols. We don't necessarily carve something out of wood, but we try to find ways to execute our wonderful plan for our life and how uh, we can schedule and plan things to go according to our plan and in a way our, our plan becomes the idol that we worship or and it's well why do we want that thing well it's because we think that we deserve to always be comfortable and so we're worshiping the idol of self the idol of comfort but God is too loving to let us live for lesser idols in life uh, for his sons whom he loves, he'll always crush them, which is a sort of wilderness experience, if you will, which we tend to sometimes respond like the Israelites. We grumble, we complain. It's all those other people. Yeah. And so we mistreat them. And in doing so, we wouldn't think of ourselves as being self-righteous, but that's what we're doing because we're thinking about things, right, and those other people just don't understand, and why don't they get it? Why aren't they as smart as me? Well, when it comes to trying to keep these idols out of our lives or out of the lives of the Israelites, well, how, how were they to do that? Well, you see that in verse 2. He says, you shall keep my Sabbaths, and Fear my sanctuary. This is going to be the thing that's going to protect you from idolatry. It's the worship of the one true God. It's resting in him only and not in trying to find that rest in other places. So for us, it's these concepts of we're, you know, regularly fellowshipping, worshiping together that helps to protect us from idolatry. Now, you notice here this word walk, uh, in verse 3 says, if you walk in my statutes. What does it mean by walk here? Does this have to do with just the direction of your feet? Yeah, yeah, living, obedience, you know, it's, it's, it's your conduct in your life. And you're, you're seeing here that this involves absolutely everything in their lives. You remember going through Leviticus, this include their diet, their dress, their calendar, everything. And in seeking to be holy to the Lord, we want to think about how, how can we walk with him according to his commandments and statues, his principles and decisions, his thinking that he has given us in every sphere of life. It says in verse 3, not only to if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to do them. That word keep there, what, it, what does it mean to keep God's commandments? Does it mean just writing them down on like some little piece of paper and fold them up and put them in your pocket and you keep it with you? Yeah, keep them and do them. Those concepts are tied together. So you think it's, well, you're, you're studying them to live by them. That's how you're keeping them. You can't keep something you don't have, but you have to uh, you know, obtain the, the treasure to be able to spend it. You kind of see this concept in Proverbs where Solomon's telling you know, his son, you, know, you need to fill up your wisdom wallet. You know, wisdom is better than gold, but you can only spend what you have. So get as much wisdom as you can so that you can spend it in the future when you need it. So that's the idea of 
keeping the commandments. We're studying them in, in order to live by them. We observe them in order to comply with them. And the way that we preserve God's commands is by knowing them and keeping them and seeking to live by them. Now, you probably heard in this text while I was reading it that there's these elements of the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant that are becoming intertwined here. So elements such as land and being fruitful and multiplying. And what God's telling the Israelites here within the Mosaic covenant is that keeping these things that I've commanded you to do is going to connect you to the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You have to have this kind of obedience to have these blessings. So obedience precedes the blessing. So obedience would be the fruit that they were tied to the Abrahamic root. Now you might remember, or you might not remember because you weren't in Genesis class when we went through Genesis 12 through 17, but one of the points that is made there is that the, the number one value of God's people is to be faith in Him. And that's an important piece of the Abrahamic covenant. You'll remember uh, Moses' comment on the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, 6, where he says, Abraham believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word believe being the word for faith, you know, he had faith in him and that's how he was counted righteous. It wasn't that he obeyed and then that's how he became righteous, but it started with he had faith in God that God was the righteous one. Righteousness was something alien to him. It was a gift to him. And as you've seen through Exodus and Leviticus, the Mosaic Covenant couldn't make these people a, a new tree that could bear a different kind of fruit. It just pointed out you're a bad tree and you have bad fruit, which points to, well, we need a, a better covenant than this one. Uh, we need something that can give us the heart obedience that this thing points out that we don't have. Uh, we need God to enable us to be that kind of tree by making us a new tree, by giving us a new heart, by fulfilling the point of the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision. You know, we need to have a circumcised heart in order to obey God. So, in a way, you get an ordo salutis here, which is an order of salvation. So, you think about this. We, we have these words obedience and blessing we've talked about. Which, which comes first, the obedience or blessing? I have people talking about chicken and eggs. <laughs> yeah, very intertwined. So where does salvation fit in this order? All right. One person wants to put it over here. Anybody want to argue for Phariseeism? Okay, let's put it in the right place. Salvation happens first, then obedience, and then blessing, right? 
you can see that and how you have the Abrahamic covenant that's of promise and it's by faith. And then you have the Mosaic covenant where God's telling them to obey and you can enjoy the blessing of living a life in faith to God. So you see, faith is the thing that brings somebody into relationship with the God of Abraham. It's not starting right here. It's not, well, we get a relationship to him by keeping his law or keeping his Sabbaths. It's like, well, the reason we do that is because he has delivered us. You can think of that and just what happened historically with the, the Exodus event. They didn't start obeying Ten Commandments and then God said, you know, I think I'll deliver these people. I, they, they've earned it. They deserve it. They're trying to keep my commandments before I even gave them to them. <laughs> and you see, that's not how it uh, works out. We'll expand on this a little bit later here. Going on and reading about these blessings, you see that all of the blessings are tied to the land, which you see that he says, if you obey, there will be productivity, there will be rain and bounty, there will be peace, and that you'll have security from wild beasts and other nations, you'll have power to rule over your enemies, uh, you'll have an increasing population where you'll be fruitful and multiply, which, you know, this, again, you see the land promises are linked into the, the Abrahamic covenant, and being fruitful and multiplied is tied into creation and the Abrahamic covenant. Because you remember, God's creation purpose is to have a people who would be fruitful and multiply, to have a multiplication of his glory to the ends of the earth by how they would live as his people throughout the earth. And then that gets tied into you know, covenant promise of Abraham and that, that God says, I'm going to do that. I promise that you're going to be the people that I have purposed you to be, but it's going to be by my promise, and it's going to be my faith. And when you have a bunch of people, you also need a bunch of food. So God also promises not only the blessing of greater population, but also provision. He says there will be an increased food supply for this increased population. Uh, even in the year of Jubilee, like we talked about last week, when the land was to rest, it was a reminder, you know, we can, we can trust God, which again is the idea of faith. So he's been faithful to us in the past. He provided manna from heaven, which he was still doing at, at this time. So when it comes to the year of Jubilee, it's, well, how do we know that he's going to provide in the seventh year? Well, he's provided for six years. He provides all the time. That's what he does. We can trust him. We're going to be okay. And then the greatest blessing of all is found in verses 11 to 12, which is God's presence with them. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, his tabernacle among them. And he says, and I will also walk among you. So this section starts with, you know, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, and then it ends with, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Does this give you a flashback or a deja vu moment to some other section of Scripture? The garden. Yeah. Because remember, I mean, this, this was something that was very much at the forefront of their minds, especially with all of the tabernacle worship, because it pictured Eden right there in front of them, but it reminded them of their 
ancestors who had walked with God. So this was holding out the promise that if you can really become holy, you can return to Eden where God walked with man who walked with him. He's, it was also a reminder that you can be rescued from the death curse like Enoch who walked with God. You can be delivered like Noah who walked with God. You can be connected to the Abrahamic blessing in the land that was promised to him by walking by faith like your forefather Abraham. He says, and when all of that happens, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the statutes and the commandments all come together again and everything lives in peace with God under the command of his word. And when that happens, then everything's gonna be like Eden where God watered the garden so that the land would give forth its produce. So this was teaching the Israelites if, if you really have holiness, you can go back to Eden. You can go back to that kind of relationship with God, but you can't have Eden without holiness because you can't have unholiness there. But if you do have holiness, you can go back there and God will walk among you and be your God and you'll be his people. So it's holding out the hope that that kind of relationship can be had, but it's also displaying the power of holiness. So holiness just isn't the standard that you look at and say, well, only God is that and I can't, I can't keep that. But it's also holiness is how we're made holy. It's by God's holy power that he makes us holy. So it's not just a standard, but a power that brings a people back to God, back to Eden, so that they can fulfill their calling as a nation to be a holy nation. It's talked about back in Exodus 19. But again, this is all based on salvation. You see this in verse 13. This is, well, how can all of this be possible to where we can walk together again in this and be God's people and God's land under God's blessing? How can we go back to something like that? Verse 13, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So, well, how is all this stuff possible? Because of Yahweh. It's because he delivers, because he breaks the old slavery. He breaks the yoke and he's the one who makes you to walk in him. And so salvation comes before obedience and blessing. And this blessing you see is both physical and spiritual. It has to deal with productive land, but also a relationship with God. And I think it's worth mentioning at this point in the scripture while we're still in the book of the law that what's happening here is the law is being established. You know, this is... Genesis through Deuteronomy, in a way, would be the Bible of the Old Testament. So you think about that when you get to the prophets, which starts with Joshua. They take the established law and they enforce it. Because uh, everything's established by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy. And you have future leaders who are to read and write the Bible. That's what they do. They, 
we call that personal devotions. Maybe you've stopped the journaling part, but if you wanted to write out the whole Bible, it'd probably be to your benefit. But that's the, the distinction of moving from law to prophets. You have the law that's established. You have the prophets who enforce that law. And so what the prophets are is they're, they're the preachers and the prayers of the law. You know, they would preach the law to the kings or to people within the world, but they would also pray the law because they say, well, God, you promised this in the law, so you have to do this. So that's just something to store away to help you in reading through the, the first testament. Now, as we discuss that the the fruit of you know true faith in God because somebody's been saved is obedience, but what you see with Israel is that they, they, they failed to be that kind of vineyard. They failed to be that kind of fruit-producing vine that God had called them to be. And even though the yoke of slavery in Egypt was broken, many of them failed to enter into God's rest. That's what we're going to see when we get into numbers. And... Jesus picks up on the, the yoke imagery when he teaches future Jewish people that you know, they can lay down the burden of trying to put salvation over here on this side. You know, they can lay down the burden of think, well, it's obedience that gets the blessing that leads to salvation. And they find their rest in him. He says, Nobody ever found rest in the law ever. It was never designed to do that. Uh, rest is found in God's promise. It's found in what God promised to Abraham, not what he commanded Moses. And when you get into the beginnings of the New Testament, you hear blessings and cursing that's still given by Christ the lawgiver. But instead, this is Christ's administration who has come in the place of Moses' administration. And similarly, he comes up and he stands on a mount. And when he preaches, he just he preaches, Blessed are the poor. And he says, Blessed are the and then blessed, blessed, blessed. Oh, he's only preaching the blessing. He's the, ble he's the blessing bringer. That's who this guy is. He's the one who's greater than Moses, and he's the rest bringer. He's the one who's in charge of all of it. This is the king of the universe. And he's giving us you know, his law and teaching us about the blessing of his kingdom. But you also hear cursing toward the end of Matthew and Matthew 23 and that comes toward Israel where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. So you see, the, the same God of Leviticus 26 is Jesus, the one who is God incarnate in Matthew's gospel. But now, in that new era under Christ, you see the, the blessing doesn't always look the way that you might anticipate. You know, we think about blessing, it's, you know, you get the clothes you want, you get to eat the food that you want, stuff like that. But when you read through, you know, the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, is the blessing is 
poverty. It's being poor in spirit and sometimes also in life. It's being lowly and humble and sometimes in need. It's, it's you're being blessed with affliction and persecution for the sake of righteousness. And so he envelops that in in blessing. You know, it's not just that you got to buy one, get one free coupon at the place or that the Chick-fil-A gives you a free sandwich while you're sitting at the traffic light. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that's a good thing. It happens in Texas, at least. It's never happened to me in California. I'm not saying you should move or anything, because that'd make me cry. <laughs> but it, it shapes a, a different understanding of blessing in our minds to embrace Poverty, need, persecution, and things like that. And, oh, I'm under the favor of the Lord when people are uh, speaking wrongly about me and falsely accusing me. This is wonderful. Moving on in Leviticus 26 and chapter 14, we see the, the curses for disobedience. And I'm going to highlight some things within here, we won't read all of this, but you hear this section, it starts off, but if you do not obey me, it's like, well, what if we don't obey him? What happens? If you do not obey me and do not do all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul loathes my judgments so as not to do all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. And I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated before your enemies and those who hate you will have dominion over you. And you will flee when no one is pursuing. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will discipline you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of strength. I will also give your sky over to become like iron and your earth like bronze. And your power will be spent uselessly for your land will not give forth its produce and the trees of the land will not give forth their fruit. If then you walk in hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And as you keep going on, you keep hearing this word walk come up. You know, in verse 23, it says, if by these things you do not accept my discipline, but walk in hostility to me, then I will walk in hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. So you see there's this transition from yeah, the blessing is you walking with a God who walks with you. Curses, you walk against God who then walks against you. He, instead of being for you, he's against you. And the cause of this discipline or punishment, which, you know, there's a distinction between those terms in which God would discipline those who were his remnant sons in Israel but for everybody who, who were not his sons, it was just punishment. It was just a foretaste of hell to come. 
And all of the, the cause of this happening, which you see, it happened to both. It happened to both the, the believing remnant and uh, the unbelieving that was amidst them. They were all wrapped up in the, the difficult situation that would come from disobedience. What brought about this discipline slash punishment was rejecting his statutes and says, loathing his decisions. So you just... They're burdensome to you. You don't, you don't want to do them because the, the love of God is not in you is how it's discussed in 1 John. What you see is man's will rejecting God's will and man in his thinking rejecting God's thing. He doesn't want God's judgments. He's got his own judgments about things. He's got his own way of seeing the world and doesn't like how God tells him to see the world, which is a warning to now, those who would uh, follow any other authority than Scripture when it comes to living for God, when it comes to life and godliness, the only thing we need is God's Word. But we can also deceive ourselves in thinking, well, I do have God's Word, but I also have this other thing. And then we mix other counsel in with the Word of God. It could be the traditions of men. It could be even just our, our own thinking and feelings where you just say, well, I feel like it's probably this, but you couldn't go back and just say, well, the reason I feel this way is because I know that God thinks this way and he wants me to think this way, and that's how I came to that conclusion. You know, we just live a lot of life uh, intuitively. So we want to have counsel that's founded in God's word alone and loving that word and not loathing it. And the consequence of disobedience, as we've read, is increasing retribution from God, which it's laid out in five stages throughout the rest of this chapter. It starts with debilitation and defeat, where God's presence is turned against them. So you hear these words about God's presence, his face, instead of his face shining on them and blessing them, his, his face or his presence is against them. You see the same sort of concept when you get into you know, the concept of eternal punishment in Second Thessalonians for those who reject God. He says that they'll be cast away away from his presence, but away from his presence means away from the presence of his glory, but in the presence of his punishment only. You see that sort of concept even being built out here. And you see the curse is the opposite of blessing. You know, instead of being under the Lord's favor, you're under the Lord's punishment. And God foretold here enemies ruling over Israel if they disobeyed. And that this would only increase if they wouldn't repent. So there's a design to the discipline. It's always, discipline is always meant to lead them to repentance. And if they would refuse to repent, what he does is he intensifies the discipline. So in this case, it intensifies to being drought. And so God will reverse the land being productive, which resulted from these people's arrogance and self-sufficiency. It says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Verse 18 
goes on, if also after these things you do not obey me, then I will discipline you. Now, God's discipline wasn't just for the fun of it, but it was for holiness. It was to teach holiness at a number of levels. Yes, for the, the believing remnant, it was to teach them to turn away from unholiness to, to walk in God's holiness. They would see that walking against God is painful. But walking with him, there's blessing in that, even though the difficulties of life don't necessarily go away. But one's perspective and heart attitude is changed. But God's discipline would also teach the nations holiness. So they would look at what God was doing with Israel and seeing whoever their God is, he does not put up with disobedience. He's a holy God. And when God punished Israel, it was a warning shot out to the other nations because he says, I'm not the Lord just of Israel. I'm the Lord of all the earth. I'm the Lord of every nation. And if you disobey me, I'm coming after you too. And God didn't merely carry out his discipline and punishment just to satisfy his judgment. As we've talked about, it was meant to lead Israel and others to repentance, but to Refuse to repent was to incur only more discipline. And all of this is helping us to, to understand what's going to happen in numbers as we see a people who God continually disciplines and they refuse to enter into his rest, but he keeps doing things to get them to turn into his rest rather than continue to turn away from it. As the stages of retribution continue, you see there's also devastation by wild beast, where basically the Lord communicates that if you guys act like Egypt, I'll treat you like Egypt. And the retribution would increase by deprivation, by siege, where there would be, they would be invaded by foreign enemies. They would have increased opposition from other nations and the pinnacle of retribution would be deportation from the land where all of the blessings were tied to. They would be totally outside the land of God's blessing. Another word for that is exile. So he's teaching them that unrepentance would result in exile from the land. As Bill Barrick writes, he says, since the, the blessings are all tied to the land, removal from the land indicates a complete cessation of all the blessings. We see that exile is God's ultimate punishment. And when you read through what this exile involves, you know, one of the things you see in verse 29 says further you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat he says when you get to the the ultimate retribution of god you will be totally dehumanized which you recognize that the these statements are prophetic these are things that would happen to israel and you see that when you get to you get to the exile, Jeremiah is seeing all of this happening, and when you get to Lamentations, it talks about it, Israel has become cannibals. And then right in the middle of that, Jeremiah says, 
great is your faithfulness. You said this was going to happen, and it happened. But he also remembered that God wasn't only faithful in bringing the curse that they deserved, but that his mercies are new each morning, which is where the, the logic of this chapter goes. It goes to restoration. So he's telling, you know, Jeremiah's message says, if God is faithful to curse you with being cannibals, he's going to be faithful to deliver you from this as well because his mercies are new every morning. In verse 33, he says, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And you think about this. This is <laughs> the seed of Israel that God is scattering out to the nations. He's doing it in judgment, but he's also doing it to carry out his purpose to reap a harvest of Israel becoming the witnesses that they should be and to draw in people from the Gentile nations to become a holy people to believe in him as well. But there was also another purpose in scattering them out of the land and it was so that the land could enjoy its Sabbaths, so that the land could have rest from sinners. So becoming landless and taking back into captivity, you see that this, this, was, this was a promise that Yahweh was giving them. He was telling them, this is going to happen to you. The land that I gave you, I'm going to kick you out of it so it can have some rest, and you're going to be in exile and overtaken by your enemies, but I am going to bring you back someday, but it's after I cure you of your spiritual amnesia where you see these people had forgotten that they were delivered from bondage in Egypt. And it seems like they forgot about it right after it happened. <laughs> and so he says, the way that I'm going to help you remember is I'm going to put you back there again. And then you're going to call out for him to come and be your, your rescuer, which Israel still has not come out of exile yet. And... The church joins her in exile as well, which you see that explicitly stated when you start reading First Peter, when he talks about us as exiles. You know, we're, we're exiled from living in God's dwelling place, exiles from living in the presence of God only, sojourning through this life with him until we get to that day where it's just our God and his people and his land. Now, the contingency of the blessing and the cursing is repentance. As we talked about, God's discipline and retribution has the repentance of God's people as the ultimate goal. Don't you see, every thousands, if not millions, of people endure you know, God's judgment but it has a specific purpose in drawing God's people to repentance as it's carried out. And if the people repent and come to Yahweh in faith, he will restore Israel to the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Now this starts in verse 40. You see this idea of repentance here. It says, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers... And their unfaithfulness which they committed against me. And also how they walked in hostility against me. 
I was also walking in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make up for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. 